Well, Kelvin did a great job picking out the songs. We, we sang a lot about worship, and that's how I want to introduce the text tonight. Um, anthropologists tell us that uh, man worships. Man has always worshipped. In every place, every time, man will worship something. Uh, the ancient Egyptians worshipped, some of you may know, the dung beetle, believe it or not. Ancient Greeks and Romans worshipped flies. Uh, Buddhists venerate Buddha. Uh, you may know that Hindus have 300 plus million gods. Uh, Shintoism, they venerate their ancestor. Islam worships Allah. Darwinists worship the selfish, the, the selfish gene, as Richard Dawkins calls it. Uh, hedonists worship pleasure. Humanists worship man. Satanists worship Satan. Man is always worshipped. Uh, it's what he does. But nobody can worship like Christians. Nobody. Nobody can worship like Christians. I'm not talking about pseudo-Christianity. I'm talking about the real born-again kind. The born-again Christian knows how to worship better than any other being in the cosmos. Even angels can't worship like us. Now, angels, angels can really worship. I mean, they, they can do a great job of, of worshiping the Lord. They are uh, perfect, in one sense, perfect worship machines. You may remember the, the account of the, the four heavenly creatures in Revelation chapter 4. And all they do from the time that God created them, all they've ever done is stand in the presence of God and worship Him. You remember that text? And it says that they have eyes all around and, and within. And I've often said, I know they wish they had one more eye just to drink in the beauty of God. But these, these are perfect worship machines, but they cannot worship like a born-again Christian. They cannot Again, don't misunderstand me. Their worship is perfect and their worship is pleasing. But their worship does not contain a component that our worship does. We know what it's like to be guilty. And we know what it's like to be forgiven. Angels don't know this. Angels don't understand about grace they can worship, but they cannot worship like us. They have never been forgiven. We understand grace. We know what grace feels like. We know what it feels like to be guilty, don't we? But in Christ Jesus, we know what it feels like to not be guilty anymore. We know we deserved wrath. We know we deserved hell. But we got Christ. We got grace. We got mercy. And we got heaven. Amen? Angels can't worship like we can. They don't know anything about this. They don't know anything about being forgiven. You may remember Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Does anyone know how that text finishes? Does anyone know? How were we reconciled? Was it through diplomacy or uh, arbitration or negotiation or petition? How were we reconciled? By the death of the Son of God. 
It's an astonishing thing. I've said to you many times, I don't know why there aren't 10,000 people crushing to get into this room to hear about Christ Jesus. I do understand it from uh, the total depravity of man's side. I understand that. But the gospel is an unbelievable message of salvation and good news. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We were the enemies of God, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of Him, uh, the iniquity of us to fall on Him. You may remember the, the passage, Isaiah 53. We were the enemies of God, but He lavished the riches of His grace upon us. Ephesians chapter 1. We were the enemies of God, but He made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. We were the enemies of God, but He has chosen gladly to give us the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 12. We were the enemies of God, but He has chosen to freely give us all things. Romans chapter 8. We were enemies, but now we are sons and daughters. And it goes even further. We are, someone tell me, co-heirs. Co-heirs. Nobody can worship like we can. Amen? If we have any sense of what the Bible is saying about who we were and who we are, nobody can worship like we can. John Piper defines worship as well as anyone. He says, he says it like this, the inner treasuring of God is the highest value in the universe from which proceed acts of faith, obedience, devotion, and love. And I was thinking about Piper's definition. I was thinking... Hey, that's just the main verse of Philippians, uh, of the book of Philippians. The core verse of Philippians. If I ask you what the core verse of Philippians is, what would you say? Amen. Amen. Philippians 1.21 For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen? That's how you live, right? That's how you prosecute your life, right? That's always at the forefront of your whole life. Every decision you make, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? In theory, I know we have work to do, don't we? We all have work to do. But that is what a born-again believer's life is supposed to look like. This will be our last sermon in the book of Philippians. I've really enjoyed being in it. I've really just watched, enjoyed watching Paul effervesce in his prison cell. He's just sitting there effervescing. He's mentioned joy and rejoicing 15 times as he's chained to this vulgar, stinking Roman soldier. Can you imagine being chained to Paul? Man, those guys just have to get converted, right? They just have to be converted. You know, no mercy on those guys. Can you imagine what that would be, would be like? Last week, Paul said, God is my secret. He said, God is my contentment. God is my joy. God is my strength. Philippians 4.13, maybe the most beloved verse in the book of Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It all flows out of a heart that treasures Jesus Christ above everything else. So beloved, let me ask you, do you love Jesus Christ above everything else in the world? That's Christianity. That's, that's New Testament Christianity. Do you love Him supremely? 
There's a sermon out on the podcast, Supreme Love, talking about true conversion. Go out and listen to it if you like. I'm going to read the text to you again, just the first six verses. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, 14 to 19. I'm going to read these verses. And when I finish, I'm going to ask you two questions, okay? So you're going to have to work a little bit tonight. Two questions. One, what is the repeated emphasis of this verse? And two, based on this emphasis, why do you think I opened and introduced the sermon talking about worship? Okay? Those are the two questions I'm going to ask. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourself also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now that, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Verse 18. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And, and my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What is the emphasis of the text? Pardon me? Giving. giving. Excellent. Excellent. Giving is... A, look, verse 14, he talks about sharing. Verse 15, he talks about sharing and giving and receiving. Verse 16... He talks about a gift for his needs. Verse 17, he talks about a gift again. Verse 18, he talks about receiving what was sent. Verse 19, he talks about God's supply. So if the text is about giving, why do I begin the sermon with an introduction about worship? Any ideas about that? Giving is worship. And worship is giving. This is a New Testament teaching on giving. Three years ago, in this church, I had to preach one of those sermons that, as a preacher, you don't like to preach, but sometimes as a, as a pastor, you preach these kinds of sermons. We were much bigger then. We had twice as many people uh, then as we do now. We had a lot more families uh, than we do now, and everything looked really good outwardly. It really looked good. We looked really healthy, but there was one thing that was going on under the surface that, that I could see, and it was that, that our offerings were way off. It was like suddenly out of nowhere, we, ICM began to bleed. We began to bleed cash. I remember I started to tell some friends in the church that I was going to preach on this, and, and a couple of well-meaning Friends in the church said, well, Jim, you should cover that in the context of a business meeting. I said, no. Giving's not about business. Giving's not about money. What's it about? It's about God. It's about worship. That's what it's about. I said, yes, I'm going to talk about it in the sermon. I'm going to preach on it. That's the perfect context. It's about worship. It's about God. Beloved, your money's not about your money. Your money's always about God. And how you spend it, what you think about it, how you save it, how you invest it, it's a commentary on God. If we understand uh, our New Testament Scriptures, we understand this truth 
Giving's not about the business of the church. It's about worship. And that's what troubled me as the pastor of this church. It wasn't the cash flow. It's what the cash flow said about our hearts. It's what it said about how we loved God. It's what it said about how we viewed God and how we treasured Him. Beloved, I know some of you have heard me say this many times. don't know if I can say it enough. 16 of Christ's 38 parables speak about money and wealth. Jesus taught more about money and wealth than He taught about heaven and hell combined. One theologian estimated that 15% of everything Jesus ever said was about money and wealth. The Bible contains 2,000 references to money and wealth, twice as many as the total references to faith and prayer. God means business about your money. Actually, guess what? You already know this. It's not your money. Whose money is it? Oh, everything on the earth is mine, says God. The reason I started with the psalm that I started with. It's not yours. You're like an employee, right? You're like an employee. You are a steward. God has entrusted resources to you and you will give Him an accounting. Amen? Again, this is what the Bible teaches about giving in the New Testament. It's what we talked about last week. Human life is all about God. It's all about God. Now, obviously, that includes your money and your possessions. John MacArthur is 100% biblically accurate when he says, the credibility of our Christianity is at stake in how we give our money. That might be a new thought to some of you, but what I want to say to you is that's completely biblical. The credibility of your professed Christianity is at stake in how you handle and give your money. Again, it, you are a steward. You are a steward. It's not yours. It is His. And each one of us will give an account. I looked up the word credibility. It means the believability of our Christianity, the plausibility of our Christianity, uh, the, the sincerity of our Christianity. So I want to ask you, beloved, I want to ask you, how credible is your Christianity today? How credible has it been this year? How credible was it last year? Have you been honoring and worship, worshiping God in your money and in your finances? You know, I get the question many times, why, we don't, why do we not pass the offering plate? That's an excellent question. I, I sometimes struggle with this. I think sometimes we should do it uh, because it is a legitimate form of worship. But you know what? The reason we have never done it is I don't want people to think that's what we're about at, the, at this church. We're always about money. I don't want people to think that, and I don't ever want people to give who don't want to give. You know, if you don't want to give, don't give, because if, if you give grudgingly, it does not please God. Amen? So if you don't want to, don't do it. And that's why I don't pass the plate. That's why we don't pass the plate. I don't want someone to say, well, I've got to give because somebody's watching me and I need to give. I don't want to look bad. I don't ever want that to happen in here. So, it's between you and God. Are you going to worship God with your money or not? It's between you and Him. And as your pastor, I'll simply exhort you and tell you what God's Word says, but it's between you and Him about your 
giving. Why should Christians be givers? What is the core reason? Why should we be givers? Because our Father is. Amen? Our Father is an irrepressible giver. Our Father, I like to say about Him, He's an omnipotent giver. You can't stop Jehovah Jireh from giving to His people. And He calls us to emulate Him in this. The more deeply we understand this, the more serious we will be about our giving. If, we were, if we're just on the surface with God, we're not going to fully grasp and understand why we should be systematic and sacrificial givers. But if we've gone deep with God, we understand. We understand that that's His nature, and we understand that He has called us to emulate Him in this. The Christian is not to be the occasional spare change, impulse-giving Christian, we are to be systematic and we are to be sacrificial. This is the teaching of the New Testament. The Philippians, the Philippians were like this. Look at Paul. Look what he says here. He says, man, he says, thanks for that gift. Verse 14, verse 15, he says, no church really ever shared with me like you have. Verse 16, he says, you've met my needs multiple times. These guys are credible Christians. Amen? They're credible Christians. They give. They give. One of my favorite passages about giving in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a very familiar passage. And Paul's actually talking about the, the Philippians here. They're, they're located in the region of Macedonia. And I think Thessalonica and, and there was one other church, maybe Berea. But listen to what Paul says about these guys. Listen to how these guys give. Now I want you to think about yourself here, okay? I want you to think about yourself as you hear me read this. Listen to how these Macedonians gave. In great affliction they gave. In great affliction, they gave of their abundance, uh, the abundance of joy, and in their deep poverty, they gave. In their deep poverty, their giving overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Listen to this. I, this is hard to imagine. Begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. When was the last time you begged to give? I love this text. Man, they gave out of affliction. They gave out of deep poverty. Not from just their surplus, but out of their poverty. They gave beyond their ability. They gave of their own accord, not grudgingly or under compulsion, as Paul talks about elsewhere. They begged Paul that they might give. Wow. You know what? When we go deep with Jesus and we understand exactly who we were and through Him who we are, we, we, we kind of get the whole begging to give thing. We get that. We'll get that if we go deep. If we go deep with Jesus. I couldn't help but think of, I couldn't help but think of the lady in Mark chapter 12. You guys know the widow? You, got, you guys know the widow? She threw in that last penny. Um, what's that about? Why does anyone do that? Worship. It's about worship. It's not about the law. It's not about doctrine. It's not about religion. All that is is worship. All that is is I love this God so much I'm going to give Him my last penny. And I trust Him so much I can give Him my last penny. Can you imagine 
the relationship this woman had with the living God. She was not only poor, she was what? Oh, a widow in the first century. The bottom of the economic ladder. She threw in that last penny. But did God need that penny? No. But she really needed to give it to Him. It was about love, beloved. It was about worship. It wasn't about religion. It wasn't about the law. You talk about credibility and believability. With her last sense, she confesses, I love this God. He's the most real person in my life and I trust Him with dinner tonight because this is my last penny. I've just always been in awe of this woman. I, as I was preparing the sermon over the last few days, I, I, was, I just wanted to share with you how much I love to study about what God says about giving and how much I love to teach and preach about it. Uh, every time I study it and get ready to teach and preach about it, I am reminded of the outrageous promises of God in relation to giving and I am always convicted and I always end up giving more. Which is a good thing. I cannot not study what the Bible says about giving and the promises of God to those who will honor Him in their finances and not know I should give more. It's in my best interest to give more. Amen? It never costs me anything if we actually believe what God has to say. So I wanted to ask you tonight. This is a question I've asked myself many times. And I ask myself this question four or five or six or eight or ten times a year. You know, I know some people, they, they lock in. I'm going to say, I'm going to give a tithe. I'm going to give 10%, which I'll make, I could make a great argument for. This is 10% is not a New Testament pattern for giving. Um, but 10% is a good place to start. But you know, some people get on that 10% thing and they never get off of it. It's like I've done my giving job. Well, beloved, that's just the wrong way to think about it. I mean, hey, we're investing in the kingdom of God and He promises a, a 10,000% return. A hundredfold is what He says. He's talking about treasures in heaven. This stuff gets me jazzed. So every time I study it, I realize I have to give more money. I mean, I realize I want to give more money. Right? So let me ask you. There are two legitimate answers to this question. Why don't you give more? There are only two... I've done all the homework on this. I've spent many hours thinking about this, studying this, praying about this, examining my heart on this. There's only two answers to that question. Why don't you give more? One, I've already given everything I can, I can and I, have not, I cannot give one more penny. Of course, very few of us ever get to that end of the spectrum. There's one other way to answer that question. If we're just going to be honest, I don't want to give any more. That's really the only other answer. Now, we can rationalize a lot. We can rationalize a lot. But, beloved, I want to say to you that those are the only two answers. And I grapple with this all the time. God doesn't prosper us to raise our standard of living. God prospers us to raise our standard of giving. That's right. Amen. You know, God's just flushing. God, God means to just flush resources through you. I've told you this many times. I got it from Randy Alcorn. And listen, man, if you want to learn about giving, you need to read this book. It's incredible. 
the treasure principle. But Alcorn says you're just supposed to be God's FedEx guy. He's, God's giving you resources and you're supposed to deliver it to the need. Yes, you have overhead, right? So you, have, you, you maintain your house and your family and those things. You have overhead. You have to keep some for overhead. God understands that. But principally, we're, the, we're God's FedEx guy. We're just delivering. I love that picture. Don't you love that picture? I love that picture. Read this book. Don't read it unless you're serious because you'll get really convicted. So, but it's a great book. I love that book. Beloved, when God prospers us, it is a blessing. But it's also a stewardship. It's also a stewardship. Can you imagine... What did Jesus say about this woman and this poor widow who threw in that last penny? Did He say, hey, you really blew it when you, gave me all, when you gave me your last penny. You blew it. You should have kept that for yourself. Many of us would advise her, keep that for yourself. You'll need that. What did God say? God commended her. God commended her. and said she's given more than all who have poured in out of their surplus. Why was God pleased? Did He really want that penny? Did God really need that penny? Did He want it? What was it about? It was about her love for Him and her trust in Him. That's what it's always about, beloved. That's what it's always about. <clears throat> Excuse me. It made me think of another woman in Scripture. She'd heard Jesus was coming to Bethany and she couldn't wait. She couldn't wait. There was something welling up in her heart and she wasn't sure about it. Um, but she'd been thinking about it and praying about it. She didn't know if it was right. She didn't know if it was prudent. She didn't know if it would be well received. It did seem extravagant. But she just kept thinking about it. It wouldn't leave her heart. And then there he was. He was sitting at the table. Reclining at the table. Having supper with her brother, Lazarus, who was most recently dead. There he was, this awesome man, this awesome God. And she excused herself and she went to her room. And she got the most precious thing she owned. And she thought, this is probably too much. But then she looked at him again and she realized it was way too little. And you guys know the story. The, the, the costly perfume was worth one year's wages. Let's put it in today's context. Let's say seven euros an hour. That's at least 15 grand. 15,000 euros. At least. Her heart was exploding with love and she approached Him. She broke the vial. She poured it over His head. And then on His feet, and she took her hair down and she wiped His feet with her hair. And Jesus said, oh, you shouldn't have worshipped me like that. You shouldn't have been so extravagant like that. You could have given that money to the poor. Is that what Jesus said? Who said that? The disciples said that. Oh, they, there, was a, there was a controversy because she had, she had worshipped Jesus in such an extravagant way. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'll never forget this and no one else will either. Wherever the Gospel is preached, she will be talked about and remembered because she loved me like this. Beloved, this is how we're supposed to love our God. 
like this. Beloved, if you're miserly with God, you lose. You lose. You lose. You lose. I love that story. I love that story. It's not about money. It's not about a year's wages. It's always about God. It's always about worship. I will share one more story with you. I've told you about Edmund before, but I love Edmund. Edmund's one of my heroes. You say, well, Jim, you tell me these stories, but this is what Bible people do. These are not real people. These are Bible people. You know, we make that disconnect sometimes. Well, I'm going to tell you a real story. Edmund was a poor man in Haiti. Uh, a missionary named something. I think his last name is Kelly. Tells this story. The church was going to have a Thanksgiving festival, and they, were going to, they, they instructed everyone to bring a love offering to God, Right? And so they had the festival and everyone brought their offering and they opened one envelope and there was 13 U.S. dollars in this envelope, right? Well, in Haiti, at this time, 13 U.S. dollars was equivalent to three months' wages. It'd be kind of like Sam and Tom working the offering back there and finding about six grand, okay? So it was from Edmund. And so they searched for Edmund, but Edmund was nowhere to be found. They couldn't find Edmund. So the missionary set up an appointment with Edmund to meet him later in the week. And, and the missionary said, well, Edmund, what's up with this offering? It was amazing. He said, well, I sold my horse. I sold my horse to give God a love offering. And he said, well, why didn't you stay? Why didn't you come for the, the festival? Why didn't you come and, 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 and have a good time with, with the brothers and sisters at the festival? And he was embarrassed to say, but he said, I didn't have a proper shirt to wear. Beloved. This New Testament giving. It ain't about money. It's about, it's about our love. It's about our worship of this beautiful God. I mean, I, I love Edmund. He's one of my real life heroes. Let me ask you, do you know how to love God like that? Do you know how to treasure God like that? Do you know how to worship God like that? I'm working on it. Karen and I are still working on it. But I want to tell you something. You should never be satisfied with what you're giving. Never. You should always go further. And you get the blessing. I'm not a name it and claim it. I'm not a prosperity preacher. That's not, you don't, I'm not saying rub God like a genie. I'm not saying that. That's heretical. That's false. That's not biblical. I could say things, I get really exercised about that. I'm talking about what the Bible says. Let me just read a couple of verses to you as I close. These are some of the promises of God. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your, your wealth and from the first of your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Proverbs 11.25 The generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. Malachi 3.10 Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse and test me in this, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Luke 6.38 Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. Listen, beloved, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. 2 Corinthians 9.6 He who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, uh, you may have an abundance for every good deed. <coughs> in this book, Alcorn's book here, it's rather inelegant, but he says, hey, basically, you're just stupid if you don't go with God on these promises. I mean, I wouldn't say it that way. I'm quoting him. <laughs> he says, really, it's just stupid not to go with God on these promises. Paul says in verse 17, you know, that's basically what Paul is talking about. He says, I, I want this, I seek the profit which increases to your account. And all those verses I just read to you, he talks about how God uh, inexplicably works profit to the account of His children, sometimes temporal, but always eternal, to those who honor Him and their finances. Verse 18, Paul says, your serious sacrificial giving, it's what? It's a fragrant aroma. It's an acceptable sacrifice. It's well-pleasing to God. Verse 19, Paul says to the Philippians, to all who are serious givers, God will supply all you need so you can give. You can't outgive God. Many of you know that. You cannot outgive Him. It is impossible. How rich is God? Psalm 50.12, I read it to open the service. The world is mine and everything it contains. That's how rich our Father is. Beloved, it's like everything else in the Christian life. <clears throat> it comes down to love and faith. It comes down to love and faith. Your giving is about your love for God. It's about your faith in God. It's not about anything less than that. We can rationalize a lot. But it's about love and faith. Do you love Him enough to be a serious, systematic, sacrificial giver? This is what the New Testament calls the believer to. Let me ask you, do you trust Him enough to be a serious, systematic, sacrificial giver? This is what the New Testament calls the believer to do. Then the last few verses. Now to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. And all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Verse 20 is just a mini doxology. It's really what the whole book's been about. Philippians 1.21. Just, it's just worshiping God. To Him be the glory forever and ever. And Paul talks about all this greeting. Don't you love it? Greet, greet, greet. You know, Christians are to greet one another. And I love what he says about four different places in the New Testament. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's what I love about living in Europe. You can greet one another with a holy kiss, you know? <laughs> you know, if you do that in Arkansas, somebody's going to slap you <laughs> or shoot you. But you can do that here. And uh, I love it. And I just want to make one comment. We're done. Paul uses the word saint here a couple of times. Now, saint means that you're a member of a super-duper Christian club, right? No. That's not the biblical meaning of the word saint. The biblical meaning of the word is all true believers are saints, right? All true believers are saints. They're not to be worshipped. That's not biblical. We are set apart to worship. Amen? Saints are set apart to worship. The word actually means to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be holy. 
Those angelic creatures in Revelation 4, they know how to worship, beloved, but they cannot begin to worship like you tonight if you are in Christ Jesus. And I want to challenge you. That's what your life is supposed to be principally about. I understand we have temporal responsibilities. I understand that. But even in those temporal responsibilities, that is to be a function of worship. Worship of our Creator, Redeemer God. No one can worship like the believer. We know we deserve wrath and hell, but we will not get it because our God is a God of mercy. If you don't remember anything else from Philippians, always remember your job description is Philippians 1.21. That is your job description. And I challenge you to leave here and go live it. Philippians 1.21. Someone tell me what it is. To live as Christ. To die as gain. That's your job. Let's pray together. <coughs> Father, thank You for this Word. Thank You that You've challenged us to become rich toward God. Not that we would be rich in the things of the world, but that we would become rich toward God. That our, our lives and our giving would be a sweet aroma in Your nostrils. A sweet fragrance that would be pleasing to You, that would honor You. Father, we want to be credible Christians. We don't want to just check boxes and keep law. We want to be systematic and sacrificial in our giving. Father, give us a generous heart. We understand these promises, these outrageous promises that You've given us in Your Word. Randy Alcorn is right. We need to claim them and live them and honor You with our money. We praise You, beautiful God. Thank You that You give us all that we have. You give it so freely. Thank You that You shower us with, with every conceivable goodness and surplus and bounty. Forgive us, Lord, if we have not been thankful. Forgive us, Lord, if we have not honored You in a way that's pleasing to You. Thank You, Father, for this exhortation. We give all glory and honor, praise to the name of Jesus. Amen.